what does a vicar general in a diocese do? He's a combination of chief of staff, chief operating officer, and I don't know, all around everything guy. We have three of them here with us today on Let Me Be Frank. Bishop Caggiano sitting down with and talking to Monsignor William Scheid, Monsignor Tom Powers, and Father Rob Canali, a former, current, and future Vicars General for the Diocese of Bridgeport. So keep your radio right here at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. You can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce His Excellency Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning. We have a whole plethora of guests today, don't we? It's like a party in here, almost. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So here's the setup. Every great leader needs a great team. And the bigger the job, the more important his executive cabinet is. And today... Right at, actually, right at the top of the team for a bishop in a diocese sits the vicar general. And so today we have three vicars general for the Diocese of Bridgeport with us to shed some light on this very important role. And so let me go ahead and introduce everybody quickly. So we'll start with Monsignor William Scheid. Good Mons- morning. Good morning. Monsignor Scheid was the vicar general for Bishop Walter Curtis and then for Bishop Edward Egan. Monsignor Scheid grew up in Bridgeport, attended Fairfield Prep, and went to the Major Seminary at St. John's in Boston. He was ordained by Bishop Curtis on February 10, 1965, and served at St. Mary's in Norwalk as pastor of St. Augustine Cathedral, and then as pastor of St. Thomas the Apostle in Norwalk before becoming pastor of St. Aloysius in New Canaan. Monsignor Tom Powers is the outgoing vicar general. He's heading to Rome on the, uh, to be the 24th rector of the Pontifical North American College in just a matter of days. Hours, hours. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Monsignor uh, Powers grew up in Newtown, attended Immaculate High School, and then was off for Notre Dame in South Bend. He worked as a financial consultant with Anderson Consulting before entering St. John Fisher Seminary and then earning degrees in sacred theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University, a bachelor's, and from the John Paul II Pontifical Institute for Marriage and Family, a licentiate. Monsignor Powers was ordained in 1997. He served here in Bridgeport and then was also at the Holy See in the Congregation for Bishops. And for the next few days, I guess, still pastor at St. John's in Darien and the Vicar General of the Diocese. Good morning. Thank you, Steve. Hi, Monsignor. And then we have uh, Father Rob Canali. And Father Rob is here. Uh, he's, he's the pastor of the parish where I grew up. And he's also the incoming Vicar General for the Diocese of Bridgeport. And so Father Rob is actually coming off another big job as he's been the Chancellor of the Diocese since 2014 and pastor at St. Aloysius in New Canaan since 2017. He was born and raised in Yonkers, graduated from Iona Prep, and earned degrees in English from Manhattan College and NYU. 
And after a distinguished educational career, including important roles at Stanford University, Iona College, and some other universities, uh, Father Rob was ordained in 2005. He has been vocations director, he's been rector at St. John Fisher, and happens to be a professional organist, pianist, and vocalist. So a man of many talents. Actually, so we're blessed to be sitting here in a room full of men of many talents. So thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank and you. I want to add my voice too. Thank you for taking the time to come because we're taping this, you know, in person. And it's, uh, I very much am grateful for that. So Monsignor Powers, we're going to start with you because you are soon leaving us. That's right, yes. Right? So tell us, where are you going? <laughs> Heading over to Rome, Bishop, for the uh, Pontifical North American College to be the 24th rector. 24th? 24th rector, yes. Wow. Uh, it's a great institution, of course. You know the Casa Santa Maria, which mm -hmm. is the Graduate House of Studies for Priests. Well, uh, and I, I studied at the North American College as a seminarian, so I know the building well. I know the, uh, <clears throat> the people well, but it's still a big task. I'm looking forward to it. Very excited. Uh, sad to leave, but very honored to be chosen for this role. For people who don't know what we call affectionately the NAC, mm -hmm. right, the North American College, exactly right. what is it? The NAC was founded in 1859, and the idea is that Americans would study in Rome to really under the shadow of St. Peter's Dome near the Pope to soak up and absorb all the richness and treasures of the Catholic Church, the universal Catholic Church, and then bring that home as parish priests to the local church, the local diocese. So the NAC is, um, it was originally located near the Trevi Fountain in the center of the city. Where I lived. Where you lived, and now the, now the Casa Santa Maria, which mm -hmm. is the graduate house for priests. But now the North American College <clears throat> sits on the Janiculum Hill overlooking the Vatican and the entire city of Rome, actually. Uh, we have currently about 125 American seminarians and about four Australian seminarians who also are there. Hmm. And uh, they study four to five years and earn a degree, either a bachelor or also maybe a licentiate and come home to become a uh, parish priest in the United States. So my job is to be in charge of their formation, also to be in charge of the building, the personnel, the staff there. It's, a, again, a big, big role. Looking forward yeah, to it, though. it certainly is. And if, again, bishops in the United States, anyone really is free to send seminarians, provided that there's room. That's correct, correct yes. That's correct. Yeah, so it's open to everyone. Yes, and we have room, so please send. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, you have 194 bishops who are bosses. That's Imagine. exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so he needs prayers, my friends. Pray for Monsignor Powers. He's had good <laughs> training here. <laughs> he certainly has. Well, I can think of no better person to do it, yeah, as we've said in many different venues. So we are all praying for you. Thank you, right. Bishop. Thank you. But you are leaving as Vicar General. Yes. So may I ask for you just to give a quick propedeutic update on what is a Vicar General? I'll do my best, Bishop Monsignor Scheid. And, and, we'll, well. and Monsignor Scheid has the greatest um, longevity, right, in 10 years. So 28 years. Yeah. 28. So you're, you're next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, canon law provides for a Vicar General for every diocesan bishop. And it, the Vicar General is really an ordinary of a diocese, along with the, the ordinary, who's the, the other bishop. person who's quite ordinary. The other ordinary. <laughs> and really, as you say, is the alter ego of the bishop and uh -huh. has uh, administrative and executive powers of a bishop that's given over to him by the bishop. So that's why I can, uh, you, you've delegated me to confirm, mm -hmm. do many confirmations. Uh, you've delegated me to get permission for certain sacraments and other things. So the vicar general really is the almost the deputy of the bishop, I would say. Right. Um, you say alter ego and really helps the bishop to, uh, to manage and run the diocese. Every diocesan bishop shares in the pastoral ministry of the bishop. It's an extension of your ministry, uh, but in the vicar general, in an intimate and close-up way, gets to work with you, mm -hmm. the bishop, uh, to really oversee things, to manage things, and to help run the diocese. And it's been a great honor for me, Bishop. I've learned more from you in almost seven years than I can ever imagine. Well, thank you for that. And we have worked extremely well. And yes. you are a person who 
instills great confidence and great trust in anybody who works with you, myself included. Thank you. When you do, when you do, when you're asked to do things, you do it wholeheartedly. You do it well. And as I said in our little gathering here that we had at the Catholic Center, when Monsignor was, you know, welcomed and thanked by the curia here or the, the largest staff of the center, your influence here, your its fatherly care here, is very hard to express the effect that that has had on people, right? So um, if a rector is meant to be the father to his seminarians, you are ideal to do that. And I will miss you very much as a person I could. And we've had some crazy conversations <laughs> over the years yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to throw any idea out there. And you know, and you, you weren't afraid to say, I'm not sure we should do this. <laughs> and so I, I'm grateful. So, so having said that, Monsignor, now you have the longest tenure as a vicar general for many years. So tell us, t- tell us first of all, what's the history of the vicar generals of the diocese? How many have there been and who have they been? Uh, as far as I can recall, uh, the first vicar general, when the diocese was formed in 1953, was Father Kennedy. Uh, I believe he was a pastor here in the city of Bridgeport at the time. And he was succeeded by Monsignor William Carney. And he lived actually at St. Peter's in Danbury. He was followed, the, they were both parish priests, parish pastors, while they were vicar generals. Uh, they were followed by Monsignor John Toomey who was the pastor of St. Mary's Parish in Greenwich at that time, although Monsignor Toomey had also worked for the bishop uh, here in the, in the chancery. Uh, when Monsignor Toomey became the pastor of St. Thomas in Norwalk, uh, Monsignor Toomey became the vicar general after the Second Vatican Council. Bishop Curtis wanted a full-time vicar general. When he became the pastor, as I said, of St. Thomas in Norwalk, uh, Monsignor Bill Genuario took his place, and he was full-time until 1987. Uh, Bishop Curtis was about to retire in a year or two, and uh, he felt that Monsignor Genuario had paid his dues, as it were, serving all these years, because he, again, before he was vicar general, was served here in the chancery and other capacities. Uh, He asked me to take Monsignor Genuario's place, but not full-time because we were living in the same rectory. At the time, I was pastor of the cathedral, and uh, Bishop Curtis and I frequently had breakfast together or dinner at night, so he said, I see enough of you without having you around all the time. So that was fine. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I'm not a canon lawyer, which is often a, an equality that's looked for, and he said, I, I have enough of those around with having you. And I said, okay. So anyway, uh, I stayed on with him, and then... Uh, when he retired, uh, Bishop Egan asked me to stay on with him, and then <clears throat> I became pastor in East Norwalk a few years later, and Bishop Egan wanted to have another vicar general around here in the Catholic Center when uh, I might be tied up in the parish, and so he appointed his chancellor, who was Monsignor Tom Driscoll, and he became vicar general along with me. Tom then became pastor of Notre Dame in Easton, uh, and uh, when Bishop Laurie came, Bishop Laurie wanted a full-time vicar general modeling the diocese of uh, Archdiocese of Washington. So uh, he asked Monsignor Cullen, who then was the pastor of St. Aloysius in New Canaan, to become the full-time vicar general. But he asked uh, Monsignor Driscoll and I to also remain because there was no auxiliary bishop here in the diocese to do confirmations, et cetera. So he asked us to stay on with uh, Monsignor Driscoll, although Monsignor, or rather Monsignor Cullen, although he had uh, a lot of work to do uh, for Bishop Laurie. And then um, uh, when Bishop Caggiano came, he kept all three of us on also, although 
Uh, Monsignor Driscoll reached 75, the retiring age from uh, diocesan positions. He was through. Monsignor Cullen followed him a year later. And then uh, ICE was still active because I was not 75 yet until Monsignor uh, uh, Tom Powers came home. And then I stepped down, and we had my I just had a, a, a little footnote. Uh, when Bishop Egan came, of course, he was a canon lawyer, and he knew all canon law, and he said, Bill, what are your responsibilities? And I said, whatever you want me to do. So he drew up a whole page packet, many oh, did he really? many He called it the Pagella or the Pagella. Oh, oh yes. yes. So he gave me this. But he said, the bottom line is, he says, you can do anything I can do, but don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> you can't ordain. See, That's alter the, ego. That's a perfect <laughs> definition of alter ego. He says, you can't ordain anybody, but you can do anything else that I can do. So you confirmed Monsignor. I, I did. I yeah. did for a number of years, yeah. And in fact, the first confirmation class I did was in my own parish, uh, which was the cathedral. And we always had confirmation on Pentecost Sunday. And Bishop Curtis looked at me uh, the couple of days before, and he says, oh, by the way, he says, you confirm your own children this year. I said, oh, thank you. So he didn't come. Was that the I, first time you confirmed? It was the first time I confirmed. So do you remember the experience? Yes, I, I, I was scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> I not, Never having done it. And you know, when you attend confirmations, you don't have any idea that you're going to be doing them someday. And so you just kind of sit there and watch. And, and you know, and, you know there. And so all of a sudden, you wind up with, a, oh, it's me. And for, for the validity of the sacrament, you have to do mm -hmm. certain things. And okay. But uh, I was a bit sleepless the night before, I'll be honest. Wow. About it. But it was, it was wonderful. The people, quite contrary to I thought, gee, they're going to be disappointed with not having the bishop. The, the people thought it was wonderful that their, their pastor was confirmed. Oh, yeah. Even Monsignor jokes about that when, he, when Monsignor Powers, when you would confirm, you would always joke that you know, people would side that the bishop wasn't there, which is not right. really true. You know that. That's not true. Because <laughs> I've heard great, great feedback from when you confirmed what was your first, what was your first experience confirming how what, what was remember I went with you to St. Leo's to shadow you I was so nervous too like Monsignor Scheid I was nervous about I it I don't <clears> remember <throat> that I went, so I asked if I could go with you can celebrate and be with you and uh, just to learn what confirmation looks like and to see what you say and do what you do which nobody can follow exactly what you do because you're unique and, and phenomenal but I was nervous too for my first confirmation which I believe was St. Lawrence and uh, I did tell the story at the beginning about how when I first served Mass for uh, John Paul II as a seminarian, I was the thurifer, and I walked out first in the procession, and the entire St. Peter's Basilica saw this curtain open, and I walked out, and this collective groan, oh, it's only you. And uh, so I said, that's how people feel when I confirm. But, but people are wonderful. It's so good to be with the young people. And, you know, not every mother and father brings their 13, 14, 15-year-old to be confirmed. So the fact that they're there, they want to be confirmed, and they're stepping forward in this important sacrament is really a great honor and, and, and thrill for me. And Father Canale, you confirmed, too, because during COVID, we, you had yeah. how many confirmations at St. A's? Uh, in the two years, 14. Yeah. Yeah, right. so seven, about seven each year, yeah, yeah. because we're in that interesting time <laughs> yes, in the exactly. life of the world and the church. <laughs> right. Well, first of all, thank you for agreeing to be, become Vicar General. So you would be number... Oh, he's the ninth. Ninth. The ninth. The ninth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you are a busy man. Tell us uh, uh, what what St. A's is like, being the pastor of St. Aloysius, because <laughs> Monsignor Scheid could also chime in. He was, <laughs> he was once pastor of St. A's. <laughs> and our other vicar general, Monsignor yes. Colin, is fine. Monsignor Colin uh, was also well, a pastor. But he left. He left when he became vicar. But yeah. he has his roots there anyway. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So uh, 
Uh, it's a big, busy place, mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful place. And um, and Steve, as he said in the introduction, grew up there, and his brother and his family are still there. So yeah, we, we we have the the Lee legacy still at Saint Aloysius for sure. Uh, it is a very life giving place because not only because it's very large, but because. People are so generous of spirit. Mm -hmm. They really are. They are very, um, uh, very filled with uh, God's grace and love, and it makes it very, very easy to be their pastor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful every day. And you graciously reappointed me for another six years. Because you were having so much fun the first six, you can have more fun in the second. <laughs> you can six. have more fun, but also the you have second. many projects that you're going to be working on in the next few months. We so. do, we do, which we'll announce more mm -hmm. publicly very, very soon. Yeah. Actually, but the the buzz is out about uh, a transforming project for our parish, yeah. which I think will. We're just so big; we don't have enough space to do what we're right. supposed to do for God and one another. So, we're, I'm looking forward to that uh, coming to fruition. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, it is probably the most active parish in our diocese. It's a great Louis. training place for vicars general. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Really, in all honesty. <laughs> oh, because, that's what uh, happened. Okay. In, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in all honesty, you, you are, the parish is what it is. I mean, it just is ongoing all different types of things, right. whether it's be for charity or whether it's faith formation, whatever it is. We had over 1,000 kids when I was there. I don't know whether they still have that many, but we had about 1,200, and confirmation was about 150. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was. Uh, it was a great opportunity to get pastoral experience that you carry over with you when you become vicar general, because many of the questions that are thrown at you are pastoral questions that you yourself have already handled, and so you take which from your own experience and your own knowledge and can bring that back to right. the, the priests. Right. Yeah. When you have so many parishioners, you have so many experiences, and so flexibility is the name of the game, although you want to stay in the context of what the church directs in mm -hmm. sacramental life and so forth and so on. So mm -hmm. we're trying to meet everybody where they are and bring them closer to Jesus, as they say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then what, how would you react if uh, someone said, well, being a vicar general is like being a diocesan bishop now. You're basically just an administrator or a bureaucrat, or you just keep an organization going. Monsignor, you have the longest. What would you say <coughs> to that? Well, it's what you make it. I mean, you can, be, uh, you can be as active and as creative and innovative as you want to be. If you're somebody who just follows and says nothing, which is not my style, and I don't think it's either, either of my, my two associates here, uh, you can do that. But if you really take seriously the role that you have as kind of the second person here and you want to help the church in the Diocese of Bridgeport because you have that added responsibility not only of your own parish but of mm -hmm. the diocese, then you want to get involved in things. I mean, I can't tell you the number of boards that I have sat on and meet people down the road. Uh, your father, for example, uh, our moderator here this morning, I knew him from St. Joseph's Medical Center. And uh, your mother, too, as a matter of fact, when she was alive, God bless her. And uh, so you, you, you bring to, uh, to your position this experience, and, and it's, it's wonderful to do. And, and you can say, all right, uh, this is the direction you're going in, but maybe you should go in another direction there. And if you bring it from your own experience, they're much more likely to be listened to and followed than if you're just talking out of the air. Without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. 
Yeah, Bishop, I would think that the the average person could think that the vicar general's job is uh, bureaucratic and you're in, crunching this big chancery machine, but it all comes down to people, right? And so in the end, it's always about, as Father Canale said, bringing others to Jesus and him to them, um, listening to them maybe, uh, being pastoral. And you set that tone, Bishop. You're mm -hmm. always available to people. You're available to your priest. And so I've never felt in the vicar general role that it was a, a bureaucratic administrative position only. Never felt that way at all. It's always about people, the people you work with, your colleagues, you, and just the people that call and need, want to be heard, want to be listened to, the priest who reaches out, who needs some assistance. So um, I, I found a very pastoral position. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I was also, as you know, vicar general in Brooklyn for <laughs> seven years. <clears throat> and when I look back on those years, we, I had a lot of fun, right? Despite all the, the stuff that had to get done. But one of the, the one of the things as I reflect back now, myself being a diocesan bishop that has changed, is that as vicar general, a lot of my brother priests came to me first before they went to the bishop, mm -hmm. because you're kind of a sounding board. You're all shaking your head that people can't see, but you would agree, right? Mm -hmm. That's a great service of being vicar general that the brother priests can come and bounce ideas, concerns, problems, whatever, before they go to quote unquote the boss, <laughs> right? Is that your experience? Absolutely. <clears throat> and, and what I'd like to add, too, is that having served under four bishops, each one of those bishops was different. Mm -hmm. Each had their own personality. Each had their own approach. And so I found myself you know, adapting how I reacted and how I acted to the man who was in the position of leadership, because mm -hmm. the bishop is the ultimate leader. And you don't want to lead people astray. On the other hand, you want to be supportive of the bishop and you want to help them along the way. And so when they would come to you, they many times say, what do you think the bishop's going to say about this? Or what do you think the bishop is going to do about that? And, well, I had a pretty good idea, you know, after... Uh, oh, yeah, after of course. There. When, they, when uh, I always remember in the cathedral parking lot, the day that Bishop Egan arrived to look over the property, he said he was not going to be living at the cathedral rectory because somebody had just given a little house in Stratford for the bishop to live in. And he said to me, he said, I won't be living here, but he said, he said, would you stay on as my vicar general? He says, I checked you out, he says, and you're pretty loyal. And I said, well, I checked you out, and I guess I'll stay on. Said, Did you really say that to him? <laughs> <laughs> you are amazing. <laughs> well, you know, I had a, a, per, a person in the press who told me as soon as he knew who the bishop of Bridgeport was going to be, he would call me because the press gets it a little bit ahead of time. And I was at dinner the night before. And I got a phone call, and the girl came in and said, there, you, you have an emergency phone call you have to take right away. Bishop Curtis was at dinner with us. And I got up, and I went out, and, I, and, and this person said to me, Edward Egan, New York. I said, okay. So I came back, sat down at the table, and I looked at Bishop Curtis, and I said, let's talk about Edward Egan. And he said, let's not. <laughs> He finished his supper and he went upstairs. <laughs> oh, how funny is that? Wow. Because he would not break that. It was not announced till the morning, uh, the morning and, and he would yeah. not he would not talk about it till there. But I can tell you another little funny story about it. In the cathedral rectory, as you come in the back door, there's a big hallway, and frequently the people who didn't have homes would sleep there at night, particularly in the wintertime when it was cold. And so many times they would be there. Sometimes you'd get them a cup of coffee, whatever. So the morning of the announcement of Bishop Egan's coming, 
Bishop Egan, uh, Bishop Curtis wanted to have a little breakfast for the diocesan staff. Mm -hmm. So he invited six or seven people to come down and have coffee and donuts. That was his favorite breakfast. So I opened the door that morning, and there was a person sleeping in the hallway outside the door. So when Bishop Curtis came down, he said, Bishop, would you please come with me? I think our new bishop has arrived. He said, already? I said, come, come. And there was a gentleman there stretched out, sleeping on the floor. I said, is that our new bishop? And he said to me, Bill, you're terrible. <laughs> they were there. But, uh, but no, it was, uh, you know, it was, a nice, uh, it was a nice relationship that he had in the parish when he lived there because uh, he got to know the people in the cathedral very, very well, and he was made himself very available to them, so he, mm -hmm. was, he was good. So you lived with Bishop Curtis at the cathedral? I did. But not Bishop Egan? No. Nor Bishop Laurie? No. Okay. No. no, Bishop Egan had his own little house in Stratford that somebody had given him. It was very small, and then the, the bishop's house that we have now actually was a former convent that mm -hmm. when the sisters left, uh, Bishop Egan felt that he wanted to have a bigger residence, not for himself. He only had two little rooms he was mm -hmm. but he had many meetings and different groups and things in there to meet, and it was ideally located and everything. Right. That's why I used it. Right, right, right. Well, you know, Father Canale, you and I are going to be working together, so I'm praying for you every day. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a great relationship because actually yeah. the three of us, yeah. have had a great relationship, yeah. right? right? That's right. And we've worked very closely together right. all these years. Yeah. Right. Any, um, any apprehensions going in? Well, I remember when I went to Stanford to become a dean, and I went to the Catholic uh, Mass there on campus, and I introduced myself to the pastor, who is a Dominican friar, and I said, you know, my name is, you know, Rob Canelli and I'm going to be the new dean. He's like he he said, "You have huge, huge shoes to fill," and that was that's the only thing he said to me. <laughs> so, and I do have huge <laughs> shoes to fill because of Monsignor Powers. But uh, yeah, we have all three of us worked well together yeah. over time. So, having been the chancellor for the number of years I have, which is not too long after you arrived, Bishop, mm -hmm. uh, it was great and. Uh, what, what we do as you know, chancellor and vicar general is really support your ministry. Mm -hmm. So quite frankly, that's easy, pun intended, that's easy to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's really easy to do because you, as Monsignor said, uh, you're very pastoral and you're good to priests and good to people. And, and so it's very easy to support that. And you... <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thank you for that. When we come back from the break, I want to hear stories. <laughs> stories. Because people love stories, and so do I. Experiences you've had as Vicar General, Monsignor, Monsignor, and of course- I'll well, be listening. Now you and I can listen. I'll be listening. Yeah, you and I can listen. Oh, I have my own stories, anyway. Oh, <laughs> that should be fun. So this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We're talking with Monsignor Scheid, Monsignor Powers, and Father Canale, and we'll be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. 
This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. We are talking with Monsignor Scheid, Monsignor Powers, and Father Canali about the role of the Vicar General here in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And uh, this part should be fun because, uh, Bishop, um, you said you wanted to hear some stories. Well, yeah, I think people love stories, and it humanizes a lot of what we're talking about. So we'll start with you, Monsignor Scheid. Any stories you want to share with us? Well, you know that uh, while I was Vicar General, I was pastor of the cathedral. Uh, and one of the greatest tragedies in the city of Bridgeport happened while I was there was the collapse of Lambiance Plaza. Mm. Uh, Tell us about that. And uh, Bishop Curtis was living with us at the cathedral at the time, although he was not home. He was at the office. The collapse took place about 1.30 in the afternoon, uh, Easter week. And uh, I was getting ready to leave, quite frankly, to take a couple of days off. And one of my associates came in and said, did you hear that noise? And I have to say, I really didn't because I was on the phone. He says, I think something happened, something fell or something. He says, it sounded very, very catastrophic. So anyway, I said, well, the only thing around here that could have fallen is this new building they're building across the street. So we went out the front door of the rectory, and while we couldn't see the actual site because Colby's gym was in the way, we saw the superstructure was no longer up, which we could see before it fell down. Where exactly was it, Monsignor? Right at the ent- entrance to I-9 to Route 8. Right, up, right where there's little there's stores there. Oh, we, where the stores yeah, are now. Right, right. Was well, that it's right the on site? the other side. Just oh, on the, the other, other side. side. You see, there's a monument there. There's a monument ah. there to it and everything there. And so uh, we went both, went back in. We got our oil stocks for the sacrament of sick, and we rushed down there. But we got there before the fire department got there. The, uh, the, I had a fire department scanner in my office, and we turned it on to see what was going on. And they, they were just dispatching the Bridgeport Fire Department to the site. And so uh, the other priest and I went out, and we were there, well, just as the fire department was arriving. And uh, there were no bodies to be anointed because it was just one big pile of rubble, and everybody just stood there. The fire department stood there, axes in hand, and what do we do? Uh, there was nothing to do. But uh, what I wanted to get to in terms we. Uh, Bishop Curtis called from the office uh, and sent somebody over to tell me because I was at the site. Anything the diocese could do to help, we were willing to do. And I, the mayor had gotten there, and I told him this and everything. So anyway, um, we did serve uh, the victims' family, the victims' families for ten days. Uh, we we they started out with twenty eight families. Uh, the first day, there were twenty nine victims altogether. One was a young boy who had gone to work with his father that morning. Uh, because it was school vacation. He went to Notre Dame, actually. And uh, when uh, the father heard the building coming down, he said, follow me. 
And the father made it through the door, and the, the young man, unfortunately, didn't. Did not. He, he got killed right at the entrance to the thing. But anyway, uh, so we had the other 28 families. We housed in Colby's gymnasium for 10 days until all the victims were recovered and everything. But uh, what I wanted to get to was that when Bishop Curtis came home that day from the office, uh, he began, uh, we had a sir prayer service in the cathedral every night about 8 o'clock for everybody. And that went on for the whole week. No, the press never knew anything about it, so we were totally, completely not bothered by any press people at the time. But Bishop Curtis used to go down uh, after supper, and he would stand on the corner, and he would say the rosary. And he had the rosary beads in his hand, and he would say it. And never made anything about it. He just would be there praying the rosary. Subsequent to the finding of all the victims, there was a memorial mass, which Bishop Curtis celebrated. And at the mass, uh, a gentleman got up to speak who had been very public in opposing many things that Bishop Curtis had wanted to do over the years. One of the big ones was making Notre Dame High School Sacred Heart University. Oh, sure that was that. controversial. So this was very, very, uh, I know, controversial. But who got up to speak was this gentleman. And he just spoke eloquently about the presence of the bishop each night praying for those people. And uh, I, I just had to smile and say to myself, you know, if, if any good came out of the whole thing, there was, you know, the, the bishop's presence was noted and applauded for, you know, what he did. And he was with us. He was with us the last night. You talk about being present. The last night when we discovered the last two bodies, it's about 1.30 in the morning. And the, the process was when they found the bodies, they would notify the family. And the family would go to St. Vincent's to identify them. And uh, <clears throat> that last night, when the, we got word that the bodies were being found, the bishop came over. Obviously, he, I, he was, I don't know whether he was in bed yet or not, but he came over at 1.30 in the morning and stood in a prayer circle in the, in the gym of Colby Cathedral High School, where we all prayed and, and, and sang Amazing Grace, which came, came kind of the, the song of, of recovery or anything. So, uh, you know, there, there were things that happened there that uh, were, you know, kind of defining the pastoral role of the bishop. And I saw, you know, Bishop Curtis many times. Uh, one night uh, there was some disruption near one of our parishes in Bridgeport, and the pastor called up kind of scared, and what should I do? And I said to the bishop, what do you think we should do? He said, I think we should go. So we got in my car and we went. And so, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it isn't, I, I think a lot of times, the role of the bishop or the role of the vicar general is seen as administration. And it is, it is. There, I, I, I always say that each one of the bishops uh, has a different way of approaching things, different personality. But the pastoral always entered into all of the things that are part of their life. And, and I mean, I'm sure that like everybody else, uh, there can be some who are less pastoral than others. That's part of life. But I have to say that the, the bishops we've had in Bridgeport were never people who were afraid of getting their hands dirty, as it were. They mm -hmm. always were men who went out and, and mixed with the people and, and associated with the people. And quite frankly, and, and you just followed this up uh, with the last two weeks, we had that tragedy of the young man being killed, uh, and, and you showed up for his funeral, celebrated his funeral, and then went on to the two high schools. That has been noted. 
You know, the bishop didn't shy away from mm -hmm. something that could be controversial, and yet your presence was noted and, and noted in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. And I think that that basically is, is the role of the vicar general because as he's known to be the second person in charge, as it were, people note the fact that the diocese was present, the church was present. And in today's world, there is such a need for the presence of the church in all these crazy situations. It was wonderful to see uh, down in Texas, the bishop, the local bishop there, was present from the very beginning, right. and I think he did most of the funerals, <clears throat> that that was you know, the role that you have to kind of wade into the water, whether you want to right. or not, that right. you, had, you have to do. And when the tragedy struck here in our diocese, uh, we had no bishop. Right? That's correct, yes. So that put an additional burden on Monsignor Weiss, who was the pastor, That's right. and is still the pastor yeah. of St. Rose. Mm -hmm. So that was a, so, and you felt the, the lack. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah you did. Right, it it is, it's very much so. Yeah. See, and you, Monsignor Scheid, were, were very good friends with Bishop Curtis, too. Yes. I mean, you had a, so that, so he was able to do what he did, in fact, because he was relying on the support of your friendship to do yeah. that, yeah. which is another part of this piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. Right, so I had been his pastor, uh, I moved into the, uh, the cathedral in 82, and I was not vicar general till 87. But uh, from 82 to 87, you know, we associated, I say, we frequently, because he was a late man, late night man, and I was too, and he'd park his car right outside my office and he would come in. And as you know, Bishop Curtis had a great love of heavenly hash, ice cream, and Coca-Cola. And every night- He had them together? Yes, yeah. when he would come in at night, every night, every night when he came in, he had a big bowl of ice cream and a can of Coke. And he sat in my office and he would eat and we would talk about things of the diocese. And- We uh, never did that once. We never did that once. <laughs> well, that's not your, once. That's your word of the day. That was it. And then in the morning, uh, as I mentioned before, he loved donuts and coffee. In fact, when he was leaving to retire, we asked him to stay, and he said, no, no, he wanted to move to Queen of the Clergy in Stanford. At the time, it was part of St. Joseph's Hospital. But the men who were in the money counters in the cathedral, because we always had money counters, they had a go going away party for him on a Sunday morning, and all nine of them came, and it was donuts and coffee. And Bishop Curtis was just in his glory. He had his donuts and coffee. What a great man. And that, and that, <laughs> donuts. That, and his favorite, his favorite meals were pasta with prego sauce, or heaven or hash. Oh, you should never have said that. <laughs> well, I'm getting lightheaded. <laughs> but that's the way he, you know, and he would come in, and we would, uh, and he was very, very simply, you know, satisfied. But, but again, again, he would go out and and mingle with the people on Sundays when he didn't have anywhere to go. He would say one of the parish masses and then stand around afterwards and talk. That's and, great. That's yeah. great. That's great. You know, Monsignor, can I tell a story about our, how sure. we know each other? <laughs> so it's related. And Bishop, you were talking about Sandy Hook, and it was a really difficult time in our diocese because we did not have a bishop, and I was the uh, rector of the seminary at the time and uh, was bringing the seminarians up to the different funerals. And we had a lot of talks in the evening about um, how to meet the people of God in these very difficult moments. And uh, Monsignor Weiss set an amazing example for them, but we all tried to be to be present. And I learned a lot of how to be a pastor, actually, from Monsignor Scheid, because my first re relationship with him is I was the organist at the cathedral as a layperson. And uh, so I helped make the sandwiches for those folks that slept in the in the doorway. 
And uh, it was really uh, an amazing time for me, and it helped foster my vocation because I'm a New Yorker, like you are, and it helped me to make my way to Bridgeport to be a priest um, over many years, over many years. So I was hired as the um, organist, and it was a crazy story because I had my first audition, and then in between that and my second audition, I was in a really bad car accident. Were you? Uh, yeah, I was actually hit by a car in uh, Newtown, <laughs> and by a truck, actually. So a truck landed on my car, and I was trapped in the car for an hour. And it was September 8th, which is the birthday of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So uh, my mother, who's a very devout person, uh, said, well, now you know she'll take care of you the rest of your life because she took care of you on that day. And I was like, yeah, man, I was definitely saying the rosary in that car when that happened. But anyway, Monsignor was very generous and, you know, they called to see how I was. And then I eventually went for the audition and got the job. And then uh, it was an amazing experience. And I came to Monsignor one day and I said, I'm leaving because I got another job as a musician and I was going back to work in my other field of education and you know literally I broke my contract and I forgot about the contract but he was so generous he wasn't really that happy but he was very generous oh how could he not be but happy? then Look at that face <laughs> so then so it's a it's a good ending so then uh Fast forward several years later, I had applied to be uh, a seminarian in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you have to have an interview. And guess who my interviewer oh, no, was? You. <laughs> that was the next time we saw each other. And I have to say, we had a great time. Well, when he, uh, I got called, we used to have said one of the, the seminary had a board, and one of the board members had to interview each candidate. And uh, Father Canale was coming on Columbus Day weekend. And so everything was closed down. And so uh, Monsignor Royal called up and said, would you uh, interview a Robert Canale who is coming from California? And I said, yes. I says, I will interview Robert Canale. <laughs> and so he had to come to the rectory. And of course, on the day that, that was a holiday. And so I had no staff there. So when the doorbell rang, I opened the door. And there, and there he, he is. There, and there he stood. And of course, I had tried to talk him into going into the seminary years before that. So I looked at him and I said, it's taken all this time to get here? <laughs> there, but uh, but we were very It's how God connects. Amen. Right. Amen. It was really spectacular. So when, uh, when um, Monsignor uh, found out that I was going to become the pastor of St. Aloysius, uh, he said, I want, I want to take you to dinner. And so he said, I want you to meet me in the, in the parking lot of the cathedral and we'll go to dinner. And I thought, well, this is strange, you know, <laughs> okay, whatever. And so I did, I parked, I got in his car and he had parked the car facing right between the cathedral and the rectory. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is where it all started. It was oh, such a beautiful oh, moment, you know. And they went to Ralph and Rich's for like three hours. <laughs> oh, what a great thing. Isn't that awesome? Oh, He's yeah. so great. Yeah. So. so and that's why I love stories. Because stories fill in the, the, the life and the mystery of the church. Amen. Not just facts, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. It's a living organism. The church is a living organism. Amen. What I Whatever it goes on, it goes on. And sometimes you can predict it, sometimes you can't. <laughs> sometimes you get surprised. Oh, we always get surprised. A lot of surprises. Yeah. Amen. We uh, and we were saying that a lot of the vicar general job is pastoral, and a lot of it is listening. And that's why Father Canales can do such a great job. He's a great listener. And I, I found the last almost seven years, a lot of my time is listening, listening, listening to priests, to, to lay people, 
Um, and there's one time, uh, you know, any institution has needs clarification, there's confusion, and so they call often the vicar general. And we're almost shock absorbers to you, Bishop, because you can't take every single, you know, issue and, and deal with it. <laughs> and uh, so one time I remember uh, a woman called, there was a misunderstanding at a parish, and it was not a big deal at all, but uh, so I listened for about 20 minutes. I listened, I listened, I listened, and uh, and she was, uh, at the end, she kind of said, okay, well, thank you so much for listening, Monsignor, and uh, can I say one more thing? I said, sure. She said, you have a hard job. <laughs> so, so, and we both laughed and it was over. So I think a lot of it's just listening to people and letting them be heard and, 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 and voice their whatever they want to say. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in Brooklyn as Vicar General, um, one of the most memorable moments and one of the most touching moments was when um, soon after Bishop DeMarcio had open heart surgery and um, he was unable to celebrate the priestly ordinations. And of course, I was vicar general and a bishop. I was auxiliary bishop. He said to me, I want you, I delegate you to celebrate the ordination. And you talk about confirmation. I was like beside myself, worried about, it's got to be valid. It's got to be correct. It's got to. So, um, and then he said to me, it was very touching. He said to me, he said, and you can sit in my chair. I said, no, I can't do that. He said, and you can use a crozier if you want at the ordination, which, as you know, for those who are you know, not necessarily versed, I mean, the bishop himself, even I as a bishop going into another diocese would not use a crozier because I have no authority in that diocese. So for an auxiliary to be, to be given the privilege to do that is, is really a big deal. So as it turns out, I sat on a different chair and I didn't use my crozier, but that was not <laughs> the point. Point was, I, I celebrated the ordination and I thought it went well. It was, it was just like, I, I had to hold back tears, honestly, at the laying on of hands, because it was the first time I had ever done it. And to talk about it's an unbroken chain of hands from the apostles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about the living organism of the church, and just, it's the living, breathing body of Christ. Anyway, all was said and done. I had somewhere else to go, so ordination finished. I got into my car, and as I'm pulling out of St. James, my phone rings. And it was Bishop DeMarcio. And I said, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> and the only thing he said to me, says, not bad. Not bad. Because <laughs> he was watching it on TV. Oh, uh, I said, oh, great. <laughs> he says, I'll see you on Monday. <laughs> oh, but see, those are the moments. And, and the funny thing is, for, like for all of us, <clears throat> vicar general, bishop, chancellor, and in a smaller way, pastor, you do represent more than you, which is part of when I became a bishop, I needed to get used to it. It's like, you would say, well, it's just me, they're invited. But no, but they really want the church there, not just you, mm. it's not just you, right. but right. who you represent, right? So you meant about the tragedy for the bishop being there or yourself as vicar general, it's like the whole church being there. Mm-hmm. at the event, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, at least I forget that sometimes in you know, the ordinariness of life, mm-hmm. that we have another piece to this role right. that can be very powerful to people's lives. Yes, that's right. Right? Mm-hmm. right. And even, even in a small diocese like ours, <clears throat> you do need someone else beside yourself. Because, uh, I mean, you, you, in your large diocese, you wind up with an auxiliary bishop or two to, to carry these things on. But in a small diocese like ours, uh, you still need a person or two 
to be there because you just can't. What, what people don't realize is uh, in the world we live in today, there is so much confusion, so much turmoil that people still do come to the church in spite of all and everything that people may say about the church. There still is something that is very solid about our presence. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, people do turn to the church for advice. And again, uh, the bishop himself just can't be there all the time. But for the bishop to trust individuals to be there for him and take his place. And, you know, when jokingly I said what Bishop Egan said to me, well, I, I checked you out. Well, he would have been foolish not to check me out if he was going to ask me to do that. And uh, so much more him checking me out than I checking him out. But him checking me out because he wanted somebody that would carry on for him when he couldn't do it, as you have picked people and and, the, and uh, Bishop Laurie. So it, it, it's, it is important to have a person or two that really you can identify with and who can identify with you and, and the direction that you feel the church should go. You know, it's interesting, too, what I've learned um, over these years, both in Brooklyn as vicar general and now as bishop here in Bridgeport, is that you're only as good as the people around you mm-hmm. in the end, in diocesan work. Just to your point, Monsignor, you can't be every, everywhere, you can't do everything, and quite frankly, everybody has tunnel vision. We all do as human beings. You see things a certain way, and you need people around you who will always tell you what they believe to be the case, even when you don't want to hear it, or even when it challenges you, because that's really serving the church. And it's funny, when um, it's taken a while for us here, and all the great people we worked with, right, Father Canale, Monsignor Powers, Monsignor here, to be comfortable pushing back. Mm-hmm. Because there's a deference that you give to the bishop, you, mm-hmm. you know, right? It's just natural. Mm-hmm. But now I think we are in the, and it's a great place to be at. So even in our conversations, Monsignor Powers, you and I have had conversations and we've not always agreed. And most of the time, when you raised a point, your point was well taken because I kind of see things only in a certain way. So that's another service. Right, in a way, the average priest. There are some. There are some who have no difficulty standing up and telling them exactly what they think, <laughs> in in the most colorful ways possible. But generally speaking, there's a difference. So the vicar general, chancellor, are the ones who say, "But you got to think of this or this or this." Is that a fair way of putting it? That's right, Bishop. That's right. And sometimes a priest will call the chancellor, Father Canale, or myself, and say, "I'm thinking about this. Should I tell the bishop?" And you would say, "Well, I don't think so. Um, that's my <laughs> advice to you." Uh, uh, or yeah, I think he would right? be open yeah. to that. Yeah. Right. So uh, you're right. Yes, and and or the other way around. Yeah. Like, for example, they do things, you say you really should go tell him exactly. because it's better he hears right. from you than of he course. from of someone course. else. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Exactly. Right. Very true. Yeah. That's right. Right. Any funny stories or any? It's not a funny job. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only, the only thing I, I can think back when uh, Bishop uh, Egan came, shortly after Bishop Egan came, there was an, a little dispute going on in one of our parishes in Bridgeport. And uh, the people came to demonstrate at the cathedral. Oh, they do really? They, 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 they came to march and picket the cathedral on a Sunday morning. Really? And this was only about a week after he came. Now, this never happened before. In Bishop, during Bishop Curtis's time, there was never a demonstration or anything. And so after Mass, this particular Sunday, 
uh, one of the ushers came up and said to me, uh, Monsignor, he said, there's a, there's a demonstration going on in front of the cathedral. I said, what do you mean there's a demonstration? He said, well, they're picketing. He said, he said they want to see the bishop. And with that, the door opened, and in walked two or three people who obviously had something on their mind. Of course, the bishop wasn't there at the time because he wasn't living at the cathedral any, any longer. So, and his secretary, who was there, practically got into the vestment closet and hid because he didn't want to get involved in the whole thing. So anyway, we'll have to figure out who that so, is later. So, so I said, I said, uh, well, I says he's not here. He doesn't live here. But I said, I'll tell you. I, and I said a good lot. I, said, I will give you his secretary's phone number, and you call his secretary on Monday morning, and his secretary will put you in touch with him. And they're there. So I went over to the house after I left it, and I called up Bishop Egan. And I said, how come? I says, Bishop Curtis was here for 28 years, and we never had any problems. I says, you're here for a week. And I says, they're already picketing the place there. <laughs> but uh, that was the, the world we live in. <laughs> yeah, that certainly is the world we live in. Let me just say this, though, as we kind of wrap up our conversation. I, I'm very grateful to each and every one of you um, for the great work and leadership and sacrifice that you have. Starting with you, Monsignor Shad, you've had a very long career in diocesan leadership. And you know what? As bishop, people will say thank you to me in mm. public or wherever, but not, not necessarily for those with whom uh, I work or closer colleagues. So I'm grateful to you, and, and Tom, I'm grateful to you too for your great work. And we are praying for you. Thank you, Bishop. Mm. And I want a room at the NAC every time I come to Rome. <laughs> You've got it. <laughs> <laughs> and Father, can I look forward to, to even drawing a closer relationship when you take on the Vicar General role? Right. Thank you. So. He's got several rooms available on the 27th of August in case you want to go over there. there I'm sure he can find a room for you over there. All right. <laughs> it's history, yes. <laughs> oh, that's quite all right. No, 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 no. No, no, I'll be here. Thank you. <laughs> well, let's, let's take one more break, and we'll be back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. Hey. It's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, interesting question came in this week. Mm -hmm. It says, Dear Bishop Caggiano, what's the hardest part of being a priest? Ooh, what a great question. And in, in my own experience, if you mean by hardest, the one that I found the most challenging would be when you're in those moments of profound suffering, and there really is nothing you can do or say that helps alleviate the suffering of the individual. So as a priest, you're called to just be present to the person. But there's a part of you that wants to do something, that wants to say something. And, you know, in Italian, we say, la più bella parola è quella che non è detta. The most beautiful word is the one not spoken. So in that sense, it's challenging. In that sense, it's hard right, to do that. But you surrender to the Lord, you're his priest, and then your presence in the grace of the Holy Spirit will make the difference. So that is my immediate answer. I have to give it some more thought, but that would be my immediate answer to the question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. 
Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. We'd like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. What a special treat it was for me to sit at this table with four amazing priests and spiritual fathers. So thank you, Monsignor Scheid. Thank you, Father Canale. Thank you, Monsignor Powers. Thank you, Excellency. Um, and thank you for joining us on Let Me Be Frank today. Thank, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, my friend. Closing prayer? Yes, please give us your blessing, mm-hmm. Excellency. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of priesthood, the gift of these, my brothers, who are with me today, for the service and witness they provide. Continue to bless them in the work that remains for them, for the task and and ministry that you have asked them to fulfill. May the Holy Spirit bless Monsignor Powers in a very special way as he assumes this national leadership in guiding young men to priesthood. And we ask that your Holy Spirit bless all who are listening to us this day that we may always be joyful messengers of the gospel. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon us and remain with us forever. Amen. Amen. Steve, I'll see you next week, my friend. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. Thank you.